Howdy. Welcome to the Managing Expectations. This is the uh, uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town uh, special edition. And uh, I am thrilled to have my lifelong friend, uh, Rob Squires, with me to talk about Badlands and Darkness on the Edge of Town. Um, uh, Rob does have the distinction of knowing me longer than almost any other person and he still speaks to me thanks Rob. <laughs> you thanks, for thanks for that and thanks for joining us you bet. good to see you buddy good to talk to you <laughs> okay R rob also happens to play the bass for big head todd and the monsters it's fair to say that your day job is a night job uh for the most part yeah so we're that's we, the, the being terrified of having real day jobs is what's given us such a long career. So, <laughs> so one of the things that Rob and I uh, have had in common these many years is uh, um, a tremendous respect for Springsteen as a as an artist and a musician. And one of the and we we agree on uh, the importance, or you know, just the uh, the artistic achievement of Darkness on the Edge of Town. Yeah, best record of all time. Yeah, I mean, I, okay. So, without without get trying to get into a, you know a, a chest thumping contest with people who want to argue for sticky fingers or uh, Abbey Road or whatever, um, I would put it this way: it's a, it, it is unquestionably a great record. And it's the most personal record for me as a, as a guy, as a person. Yeah, I feel the exact same way. I mean, I think I came to the record through you, you know, when we were teenagers. You know, high school. Yeah, 10th grade, early high school. And, <laughs> and, and so dealing with, you know, those, those are hard years for any, anybody to figure out, you know, what the, what, what the world is doing and where your place is in it and, you know, friendships and all the, all of that material. So I think coming across it at that, that point in my life made it more important to me, I guess, you know, just because there's similar themes of what he's talking about throughout that record as well kind of of what i was going through on a personal level as well so you know music is you know you could like you just said you can argue what's the best i think it depends on how it hits a person emotionally you know and that record just struck me at a time the perfect time but you know going back it still affects me that way and so it, it's held up and it still remains my favorite record you just listened to it from beginning to end um, to, to, to prep for our conversation. Yeah. And, and so what it, it came out in 78. So that's 43 years ago. Uh, holds up pretty well, doesn't it? Yeah. Like I said, it's, it's still my favorite, you know, and for me, I, I love the majority of his work, almost all of his work, but it, to me, it's the most personal like it's as a record it's it's uh the theme is tight throughout and it, it seems like it's coming from a very personal space as opposed to i'm going to write a song about a character that or a st storyline that i came up with you know so i i feel that emotion through that record of him saying 
this is me, you know? Yeah. Or I would say that he was, okay. So as we know from reading his book, he like didn't learn how to drive until much later in life. Like, yeah. I don't know if he was driving by then. Right. Um, but he uh, wrote racing in the street in spite of not being able, you know, not really knowing that much about cars. Right. Uh, and, and so it, it seemed to me that darkness it, with, with the darkness on the edge of town album, he, he was revealing part of himself, but he was starting to tell other people's stories. So 10th Avenue freeze out is kind of about meeting Clarence. Right. right? Sure. Uh, but, but I, even though there are personal expressions um, in this record and, and like, for example, Adam raised a cane, I'm, I'm pretty sure is a very personal song for him. Right. Um, I'm not, I mean like, okay. So like factory is true in spirit, but not in fact, because Springsteen's dad, I don't think worked in a factory. I think he was a bus driver and then he went to California and did something. I think he did some factory stuff to it. If if I recall. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Um, Kind of the whole town was based on the factories and the mills too, you know, so maybe not just his dad, but his life and his family and the neighborhood, you know? So, yeah. Um, so, so it was it was personal, but he he also seemed to be telling a different kind of story, not about the the romantic hoods in like the first three albums. Although you know, I mean, each of those had a personal song on it. Don't you think "Growing Up" was pretty personal? Yeah, I think he, he kind of touched those themes throughout the records. But to me, like darkness was one where there's 10 songs that deal with a pretty common theme of escaping the daily grind and crap that that all that weighs down the majority of humankind you know and yeah. and and using metaphors like the car even though he can't drive right. of, there's something past the edge of town here and there's something better out there if i can just figure out how to how to get there and pursue it you know yeah. so to me there's a lot of dark darkness and a lot of dark themes that he touches on the record but it's a hopeful record for me because you know he's talking about hope and faith and something better out there you know so it's dealing with real things that weigh people down but also gives you that light to go yeah you can get through this you you can there's there's something better you know yeah, that's right. So, so your favorite song on the album is Badlands? Yeah, and I think it's probably because of that. You know, it just, um, you know, it, it's kind of like a call, call to action of saying, you know, don't, don't waste your time. Let's go, you know, let's, let's get out there and, and, and do this as opposed to, you know, yeah, everybody's got this bunch of crap they're dealing with, but you can sit there and wallow in it or you can grab the torch and go, you know? And so it just, it's always just been a powerful song to me, sonically, as well as emotionally, you know, 
just from the opening riff of it, the two bar drum fill to enter the song. And then it's just, it's pounding you in the face from, from beat one, you know, which yes. it's, uh, it's incredible. You know? I, I, I like how he almost does, uh, uh, an, an Elvis mumble, you know, with light, light, lights out tonight, trouble in the heartland. And then it just r continues to rise and he, you know, he gets louder until he's, you know, he's shouting, you know, yeah. in, in the chorus. Something, and I've listened to the song a thousand times or more in my life, you know, and only a thousand, Rob? That's really disappointing. I thought you knew something about this. Well, probably more. But <laughs> I, I noticed yesterday, and it was weird that I'd never noticed it. You know, I was kind of listening to it more analytical yesterday. And for the first time, I noticed that there's a snare drum on one, two, three, four. You know, like most rock songs, probably 80% of them, your snare drum's on your two and your four. Okay. And so sonically, it's different. Out of the box, like, you know, you have the drum fill and it's bow, 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 bow on the snare throughout the whole thing. So it's driving from beat one, which I, you know, I've always felt that, but I never stepped back from it and went like, oh, that makes sense, you know? So to listen to it like that, and like you said, it builds through the song before the last um, verse, I guess, if you go back and listen to it, there's still that four on the, on the snare. But there's also like a double time that you hear very subtly in the background, just the production of it, double timing that snare to build into that last crescendo of the, the final verse, which I'd, I'd miss that. You know, I've ne I'd never heard it that way before. And I'm like, wow, that, that's why it makes you feel so good, you know? Really? Like, yeah. Like, okay. you know, I also like ACDC a lot and I like it because they, their, their whole deal is four on the floor with kick drum so it's bum, 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 bum. it's that that rhythm and all their songs are are that way but it makes you want to throw your fist in the air bang your head exactly so See? it's like it's the most common denominator of like the mathematic of music there's the one two three four beat and when they're all just doing that it just propels your emotion you know so okay if any of that makes sense. <laughs> no, well, uh, mostly, uh, if you if you keep doing the math stuff, you, you will convince me that you know what you're talking about, but I won't understand it. <laughs> right. Well, uh, I don't. I don't. I don't read music, and I don't know the math of music either. You know, I know it's in there somehow, and it works. But yeah, so I won't be going down that path too far. So. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and that's funny because one, one of the, I, I told you that uh, Chris Levine, who we'll hear from a little later, uh, uh, had never, is 50 and he's never heard the album. He had never heard the album before, before I asked him to do this. And, and he talked about the drums at the beginning. Oh, yeah. And he talked about the first verse and, and not being, he wasn't sold by the first verse, but he was sold by the first uh uh but by, by the first chorus uh -huh. he's like oh okay this is going to be great and yeah. then and then he he actually liked other songs better but you know that's that's another guy's deal but sure um that's it's well i mean everybody you know the 
Right? I mean, everybody right. loves that. Sure. I may have made, I may have, may have made that sound more syn syntonic than it deserves. But you had uh, a little little synth in there, but sorry, I got exactly the, the lick you're you're playing. So okay, can you do it better? Probably not. No. that's it and i don't know okay i honestly i don't know how like but by the way rob i do you have anything to tell us did you recently sell all of your music to sony for 500 million dollars all right no no they haven't come knocking yet but uh i don't know yeah pretty pretty amazing it's weird what what made him decide to do that? You know, I don't really understand because it seems like he's got plenty of money, you know, and he could pass down the ownership of the songs to the family or his heirs, just like he could a big check, you know? So it was, it was kind of a weird thing to me. I thought, you know, it, so. isn't that how revolution ended up uh, in a, in a Nike ad after, like Paul McCartney sold the Beatles song, the Lennon and McCartney. Yeah, probably. Yeah. No, whoever... no, 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 no. You know what it was? Michael Jackson bought the Beatles. Oh, the Beatles catalog, right? And then Michael Michael Jackson let you Nike do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it's then... interesting. I don't. I guess you know, when we were younger, it, you were a sellout if you let your tunes get used in a commercial. You know, but that's gone 180 the other way. You know. So, yeah but it's actually one of the it's a good revenue source for musicians that you know when you're kind of no longer selling records kind of you know yeah so uh i wanted to say too that um uh you mentioned acdc which is funny because uh when i'm talking okay i don't know about you rob but i may have lost a little bit of hearing over the <laughs> yeah right and uh when i try to make do a charming aside about it i'll say something like oh yeah i was pretty cool driving my dad's station wagon listening to acdc yeah. as a teenager but now i'm paying for it right sure uh the thing is though i wasn't driving dad's uh, station wagon listening to ACDC most of the time. It was listening to Darkness on the Edge of Town and the River. Yeah. Well, um, I've, I've been to a lot of ACDC concerts as well. And it's, you know, if, you ever, if you've ever seen any of the live footage from like they're in Spain or South America or anywhere and they're playing to 150,000 <laughs> insane people and they're all just ah you know it's in, it's crazy you know but it's there's also it kind of aren't we really saying that any every country in the world has got plenty of teenage boys yeah it's it's that beat too is the lowest common denominator that everybody gets you know acdc they don't have a ballot <laughs> so uh, on any record you know, every single record is that don't, 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 don't. And they just change the lyrics. And, you know, it's incredible that they've been able to come up with enough, enough guitar riffs to have that many records, you know, but, but it's amazing. And it, it just makes people feel good, you know, and to me, um, Badlands does the same thing. You know, there's a breakdown section in the middle of the song, kind of the bridge maybe, but 
where he's going um, right, right. In, in concert, you know, there's between 20,000 and 100,000 people. It's become, whoa, 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 right. whoa and, and he draws it out. Yeah. But it's magical in a concert setting to me like that, because it's, it's one of those universal themes that everybody gets it. You feel it. And with 20,000 people singing it, you feel like you're a part of a community. You know, you feel like, wow, you, you feel bigger than, than you are as your individual, you know? So there's just so many emotional moments in, in that song that, that it's, it, like I said, you know, it's grown for me over the years, having seen it live and felt it live like that so many times. So it's even bigger to me as a song than it was when I first heard it in 10th grade, you know, but yeah 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 i you know i i, I look i i bet i have between buying various okay, okay okay hang on before we go on let me do a thing okay let me okay. pitch okay so uh everybody ought to know a couple of things one is um uh the managing expectations podcast is proudly brought to you by all in a dream comics and books in downtown Denver, Colorado. Nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. Sweet. I didn't know that. Uh, so uh, check out my old buddy Ray at uh, um, 3115 East Colfax Avenue. Uh, he can be reached at area code 303-333-8616. And also... Uh, you can get more information at allinadream.us. All in a Dream Comics and Books, the loading has begun. Now we're going to do, uh, also you can check us out on the Managing Expectations podcast at managingexpectationspodcast.locals.com, uh, which is a platform where we can interact. It's a social network that we could monetize someday, but not yet. And for the meantime, when we put have cool um, content uh, stuff I've written, uh, it'll go up there because I trust it more than I trust Facebook and Twitter. So it's like that. So check us out there. It'll be in the show notes. Uh, we're going to do a thing and then we'll be back with Rob Squires of Big Head Todd of the Monsters and talk a little more Bruce Springsteen. Howdy, welcome to uh, this very special episode of uh, the Managing Expectations podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Winger. Uh, we have uh, the Managing Expectations Music Brain Trust with us uh, today, and uh, we couldn't be happier. So uh, we will go uh, by seniority and introduce first uh, Chris Galley. A uh, longtime musician and New Jersey native. Not technically true, born in New York City, the borough, which I do remember, but will go unmentioned. It's, it's not one of the hip ones. <laughs> but uh, uh, shall we say um, your salad days were spent in the Garden State? True. Yeah. 
Howdy, howdy, Chris Galley. Howdy. Nice to be here. Thank you. Uh, also with us is Chris Levine, the uh, uh, who a friend of the podcast, uh, and uh, uh, is uh, the host of the number one rated podcast on the internet by as voted by the uh, directors of the Managing Expectations podcast. That is uh, Chris Levine's Refresher Pop Culture Therapy podcast. Chris Levine, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Chris is uh, something of a music, um, I don't know. Uh, both Chris's uh, no music, uh, whereas I'm just uh, a sad fanboy. And speaking of sad fanboys, also with us today, Devin McBride, who is uh, representing millennials in this um, in this uh, particular uh, roundtable, uh, I turned Devin on to our, our 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 theme today. Howdy, Devin. Hey, thank you for having me. Very happy to have you. Yeah, so we're happy to have all three of you. So I have assembled this this team this is like the a team uh for this very conversation I, because today we're talking about bruce springsteen's um 1978 record darkness on the edge of town and we're gonna we're gonna take it uh we're not gonna play it but we're gonna take it song by song and uh uh just find out where we stand so um uh just to get the ball rolling, this album changed the trajectory of my life. I mean, just it, I had started like listening to the words, uh, which is um, a pretentious and adolescent thing to say. Um, but it's, it's, it's long been my draw uh, to, to music and I'd never heard anything like this before and going back over it again here recently. Um, I've got to say, uh, I have fallen into the trap as most of us have, I think in the digital age of uh, shuffling or making a playlist of songs that you, you especially like, but I'm here to tell you boys, it was a treat to listen to this from beginning to end. So look, um, do, does anybody have, anybody want to pipe up about just an overview? I mean, everybody likes the album, right? I, mm -hmm. Which by the way, I don't know is true. <laughs> Levine, like you're, you scare me a little, Levine, because you, <laughs> you might not. No, no, I've got a lot to say about this record. I, I, I will say this, and I mentioned this to you before. First time I've heard it, You've First never time heard any heard this, of the songs. I have never heard any of the songs on this record. Growing up where I grew up, this was not played on the radio. It just wasn't. It was I like occasionally born to run the song would be on the radio from the other album. And then by the time I was, you know, my age group was more born in the USA type Bruce Springsteen, which you know, some of it I connected with, but a lot of it I didn't. Um, so so that was my Bruce Springsteen was born in the USA. So going to this album, I like this a lot more. 
than I liked what I had heard on the radio. All right. Whew. And then, so Galley. This was a, an important album for me in a number of ways. Um, the release of it was just a few weeks before I was um, um, shipping off to serve Uncle Sam. And uh, uh, it, yeah, it also was, uh, so I, I, I became familiar with Bruce for, uh, during the, the Born to Run album era and um, didn't learn about the other two albums much until a couple of years later. But, uh, but it, it, it struck close to home. I mean, I lived not too terribly far from where he lived. And so there were a lot of things he talked about. He mentions Kingsley and one of the songs, I know where Kingsley is in Asbury Park. I mean, that's, that's my old stomping grounds. So uh, as a Jersey boy, uh, Bruce Springsteen, either you loved him or you hated him, but either way, he was part of your life. And he was certainly a part of mine. Uh, and as it turns out, not even a year and a half later, I actually wound up meeting him and uh, performing with several members of the E Street Band and the whole Southside Johnny ecosystem, which uh, kind of solidified the whole relationship, musical relationship that I had with him. And not to mention the fact that I cooked him uh, breakfast as a cook at the Inkwell, which he mentions in his book. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> a number of times. <laughs> um, he and his uh, whichever girlfriend du jour happened to be with him. Um, saw him there uh, several evenings. I happened to be with uh, a gentleman named Mike Burke, who was a drummer. He was older than me, Bruce's age, and he was in uh, one of the original Steel Mill band members. Okay. And that's mentioned in the book as well. Mike has since passed away. But, um, but yeah, I, so uh, Spring, lots Spring of connections. book, Born to, I mean, his memoir. His book, his, yeah, his Born to Run, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, lots of connections there. Um, so uh, when I first embraced the faith I have now, uh, I found out that Gary Talent, his bass players, mother and sister, both embraced the same faith. And I also found out that uh, a retired... Um, a full-time servant in our area uh, was good friends with Bruce and with Gary and so on and so forth. Uh, so as I- Small world. Small world, but also you can hear the influence. I'm confident that there were conversations that Bruce had uh, on a spiritual level that he leveraged in his music just clues here and there. And uh, Darkness, I think, is is one of those albums. Adam raised the cane. And sure. the whole the whole story, right, story behind that. Anyway, so I'll let uh, Devin go ahead and we can talk more <laughs> later. No, I think, I, I think, uh, you know, um, okay, yeah. Devin, you like the record? Yeah, I mean, you're the first one that really brought to my attention the record. I remember growing up as a kid, you know, back when Burning CD was a popular thing. My dad had a Burning CD with a couple of Bruce Springsteen songs on there. I think Hungry Heart was one of them he'd have on the rotation. And that was like the first Springsteen I ever heard. And so when I heard you bring it up again, I was like, okay, let's check out this record. Jeff has some good taste in music. Maybe from the bookstore, I remember you recommending vinyl to me. So I checked it out and 
I wouldn't say I'd like every song on the record, but there's definitely a couple songs that stand out that I actually fell in love with. I listened to over and over and over and over again, and now they're on several of my playlists. So yeah, I really enjoy the record as a whole. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, uh, uh, Chris Levine mentioned, and uh, and by the way, if I if I say Levine, if I say Galley, I'm not being rude. I'm just trying no to worries. differentiate from the okay. yeah the, yeah mm -hmm. at, you know. At, as it is right now, it kind of sit, it kind of looks like I'm having a sit down with the four families. Um, <laughs> so so, um, uh, I think most people know. I, I mean, I mean, everybody knows Springsteen from Born in the USA. So for 35 years, this guy has been huge in the culture, right? Now he's dipped. He he he's had his dips. I mean, the 90s and and even into the odds so uh he wasn't huge but that's why i think this record is so exciting because he's a, he's a young man when he does it he's in his late 20s when he's writing this when he's recording it uh and um he so yeah he's he's like 27 28 29. um one of the things that you get and i was looking at uh uh the the biography by the guy peter ames carlin uh wrote a book um about springsteen and i just finished uh steve van zant's book which um had some insights into it but which overall <laughs> wasn't um you know i mean it's insightful but not vital um i i, I think uh, except for um, uh, his comments establishing himself uh, as a considerate lover, um, Galley would probably uh, enjoy, you know, the the, the, the book. <laughs> well, yeah. Steve, Steve Van Zandt, it's an interesting thing, too, because he, he split the E Street Band right as they were blowing up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, uh, I've never been a big fan of him Yeah. Uh, as a person, okay. uh, having met him several times. Um, also, uh, a popular myth, and maybe he talks about this in his book, he doesn't play lead on the albums. Right. Uh, Bruce, really? Bruce plays lead yeah, on Spring, the albums. Yeah, Spring, yeah. Springsteen playing the guitar. So in 1983, early 84, a uh, band I was in, uh, the rhythm guitar player, a guy named Pat Guadano, who's still at it as a solo artist, uh, grew up with, with Bruce and was, in, was with the Candle Brothers, who's also mentioned in Bruce's book. Um, after Steve left, Bruce was going to play lead, which he was doing on the albums, and he was going to hire a rhythm guitarist. And Pat auditioned and got the gig. But wow. Bruce decided... This was pivotal, though, because Bruce decided to be a good front man. He couldn't be the lead guitarist. So he went back to a ceremonial guitar and then had Nils Lofgren playing lead with him doing some rhythm. And then adding Steve back gave the rhythm guitar that was actually missing during the live performances. Of course, he had um, uh, Danny Federici and he had Roy Bitten. So it's not like it was a huge musical gap. But still, that rhythm guitar, particularly on his older songs, on um, Greetings from Raspberry Park, 
was 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 vital to the to the sound of those. So um, it was it, it was interesting that that whole musical evolution. And I do want to add something that I did finally sell my entire library of work to Sony Music today for five hundred million dollars. So nice. uh, Bruce and I have that in common. <laughs> so just thought that uh, it was important to know that, that uh, he and I will be uh, breaking bread and uh, eating oysters at some uh, fancy place on the Long Island Sound. Or Mallorca. Or my well, one of the things that you just said that I didn't know was that he played lead on the albums. I had no yeah. idea. So yeah, me either. He doesn't call it out because if you look at the credits, he, it just says... Um, guitars, Bruce Springsteen and Little Steven. And uh, so Little Steven's actually doing rhythm, except for the live performances, which to, in, in my, you know, as a musician, my, my musical esteem is increased when I hear that, because you cannot tell. Because when Steven plays live, those solos are spot on exactly how they were, Bruce intended them to be played. And that speaks something to to the talent. So you're saying Van, Van Zandt's mm -hmm. capable? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah oh, quite capable, quite yeah. capable. Even his solo stuff, which I don't know that I like any of it, but it's it just it's it's like Barbara Streisand. You don't have to like her, but you have to appreciate that she's a good singer, or boy, or yeah. was a good singer, right? Sure. Uh, and it's the same thing with Van Zandt and and that whole thing, and even Clarence. Um, because Clarence's uh, solos, many of them, not, I don't know about most of them, but at least the early ones, Bruce wrote for him. And not because Clarence couldn't play on his own, but Bruce wanted to make a statement with those solos, which brings us back to this album. Darkness. Because darkness of the three songs that Clarence plays on, each of those solos is in itself an anthem. And each of those solos is an extension of what you heard on Born to Run. Now, now there is no there is no Jungle Land on uh, uh, on Darkness. Okay, and and Jungle Land was a, a, a long opus. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, Epic what, ten song. or twelve minutes. Yeah, something. Uh, and like there's that. a great guitar solo. Or uh, I'm sorry, a saxophone solo. So Clarence Clemens was the big man. Um, uh you know springsteen's friend and 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 uh capable side man i mean uh he, he there were probably more stage antics between clarence clemens and springsteen during those years uh later on clarence would like be confined to a chair in yeah. live shows uh yeah. and and then and then van zant had rejoined and so there were more antics that way um and, and also, and so, um, so what you mentioned three songs. So, yeah. Promised Land has a, a great guitar solo, or I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. man, sax solo, Badlands, uh, Badlands, and Prove It All Night. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, sorry, man. I, and okay. Prove It All Night was a song. So, when I, when I went to serve Uncle Sam, uh, I was stationed in New Jersey and I was in the army band. And we had, um, you know, the, the military bands at that time, and some of them still today are like this. You had 41 musicians, including the conductor, who was also your commander. And out of those 41 musicians, you had to become whatever was needed. So you were a marching band when it was um, Thanksgiving Day. 
you were a concert band when it was sunrise Easter morning. Um, you were a, a society band when some general was retiring and there was an event. And for the recruiters, you were a rock band. And so I happened to be, because of what I played, clarinet and saxophone, I was in all of them. I was a Dixieland band, jazz band, rock band. Oh, wow. And, and the rock band, because um, Bruce was, was, you know, hotter than the sun at the time, we played Prove It All Night. Uh, we also did Hungry Heart. Of course, we're in a different album now. Sure. Uh, and, but uh, we, did, we did several that had these magnificent sax solos in them. All right. uh, to include, you know, and even we did 10th Avenue freeze out with the horn section. We had a, a four piece horn section okay. um, from the Born or Enamel. But anyway, uh, you know, my point was that was that uh, the the even though uh, the saxophone was not as prominent as in the previous three albums, where it was, was a statement in each one of those songs. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think, okay, so so one of the things okay, about Darkness on the Edge of Town is as a product of the late 70s, um, Springsteen was in Jersey, but he was, I, I think, recording in New York. Um, he would have been around when the Ramones and Blondie and, and, and the whole punk, the, the New York punk scene would have been exploding. And, and there's like actually a famous story that... Uh, Patti Smith's biggest hit, Because the Night, uh, was uh, uh, kind of a Springsteen throwaway. He was right. like on the fence about it. And Jimmy Iovine um, apparently like snuck it down the room uh, or down the hallway. Patti Smith was recording. And so Because the Night, which Springsteen plays live and is released um, subsequently, um, uh, but because the night is a Springsteen song, but 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 all of that punk ferment uh, was around him, and I think that it it comes out. Uh, uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town is more of a guitar album mm -hmm. than anything he did before, and mm, I wouldn't say since. I mean, you know, but but mostly does it, you know, in live shows. Um, I, I thought the same thing. I on Adam raised the cane. Adam raised the cane has a punk rock vocal. Mm -hmm. I mean, it totally could pass for if somebody, I mean, <clears throat> it's a little more sophisticated than the punk rock that was happening at the time with the keys and things like that, that were happening. But that vocal, I hadn't, again, I had never heard him sing like that. I, I, you know, the songs that I heard were maybe a little more commercial sounding. Absolutely. Um, but yeah. uh, so I, and I kind of enjoyed that part of it because you could hear, I thought to myself, this guy's in his twenties. And he's living on the East Coast, and that stuff is exploding. It had to have affected him on some level, and it sounds like it on this record. Yeah. So if you uh, listen to the promise, which were the the, the throwaway songs from Darkness, right? That, to me, that completely and, and released like what thirty years later. Yeah, thirty years later. Yeah, I mean, hidden you know hidden songs like where they do um, uh, talk to me, which was one of Southside Johnny's hits. Uh, you listen to the Springsteen version of it, very similar, but different enough where the Springsteen version makes more sense than the Southside Johnny version. There's, a, there's, a, there's another example of that. So, I mean, um, there's Springsteen and then there's Southside. 
<laughs> yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's like it's like the difference between the third largest military in the world and the fourth. It, there's quite a bit of drop. Right, right. Yeah. So, um, uh, but when you listen to the promise, I, like I said, I think it completes the picture of the album. So, because the night was one of those throwaway songs that uh, was recorded right at the same time and and Patti Smith wound up making it a hit. And there were several others on there that were more pop that um, to Chris Levine's point, um, I think would have diluted uh, darkness had they been on there. Uh, you know, and I made this comment to you, Jeff, I think in writing that the um, the album cover, the front and the back of the cover was itself a statement of darkness was a statement about uh, where Bruce's mind was at the time. I mean, he was he he was the, the quote Billy Joel, unfortunately, the angry young man. Um, he saw a lot of injustice. He grew up around a lot of injustice. His upbringing was was tough, and uh, and that was reflected in the in the lyrics. Yeah, I there, there's also, you know, for the long. I mean, when I was you know I'm growing up in Denver. And it's, it was a pretty suburban upbringing. I always thought he was a New York guy, but it turns out Springsteen's more of a small town guy. I mean, yeah, Freehold is is not New York. Um, he he he. You know, it's funny. He said he said in his live show that uh, he said I built the Jersey Shore. And uh, when he said that, I thought, man, that was an awfully arrogant thing to say. But looking back on it, the time that he was playing at the Jersey Shore, the Jersey Shore, like New York City, was in deep decline. And it was it was turning into a horrible place. Asbury Park was has gone up and down over the years. And man, back then, it was just a horrible place. And if you wanted to go to the shore, you didn't go to Asbury Park. You went further south. And what he did was, by his presence in Asbury Park, by his playing at the upstage and then eventually the stone pony and places like that, he brought in a whole new crowd of people that revitalized that city for a time until, you know, of course, the, the, the corrupt politics as they are in New Jersey ran it into the ground again. Um, it's back somewhat now, but Bruce had a lot to do with that. And um, he, he did use his influence to uh, to try to improve the community, and it's I, I kind of look at it like um, he wanted to go back home and and make it so that kids didn't have to go through what he went through as a kid, okay. and, and, right? So not necessarily his money, but just but just his, who he was, just appearing there. So so he would play at the Stone Pony on Monday nights, and uh, with a band called Cats uh, on a Smooth Surface. And uh, again, the same musical ecosystem, everybody knew everybody else. And he'd just show up there and people would come from all over the world and roll the dice to see if he would be there on a Monday night to jam wow. whoever the band was. And that's right around the time that darkness came out. I saw him I, when I was stationed at Fort Monmouth in, uh, let's see, I got, I got uh, let's see, after school, I was there in um, uh, early 1979. And Monmouth, <clears throat> yeah. So Fort Monmouth was a military base located about um, 15, 20 minutes north of Asbury Park, still on the Jersey Shore. 
So oh, the east side was on the water, west side was on Highway 35. And uh, um, so we'd tool on down to Asbury Park and the drinking age back then was 18. Yeah. So you can get into the bars, <laughs> do what you wanted. And uh, I remember going in one night and all of a sudden there he is on stage uh, playing with this local band and uh, was the coolest thing that you could experience at that I, age. I can't imagine. So, so it was Darkness, the fourth album he put out? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was the fourth, so, fourth record. Uh, yeah, and it was so delayed. Then, it was delayed because he was in a, a a legal fight with his former manager. Yeah, Mike signed Pell. a bad deal. Yeah, and was trying to get out of it. So by that time, he had quite the catalog of songs, you know, to go play a small venue then too, right? I like. Well, he, he did, but you know, Bruce was known uh, up until I don't know. I haven't been to one of his concerts in a long time. In fact, the last Bruce concert I went to was with Jeff Wenger. <laughs> Oh really? <laughs> when Bruce was Bruce was with this when he he first time he had gotten away from the E Street band and went with this other band with Randy Jackson on bass and and so oh, yeah. Selena. Can we not talk about that? I, I, by the way, <laughs> I that's great to hear. I I, I don't remember going with you uh, or yeah. is there, is or there seeing that or <laughs> seeing that tour? Really, we we saw the Lucky yeah, Touch tour ninety three. Yeah, the Human yeah. Touch and and uh, what's the other album? Um, they, they, Human Touch and Lucky Town. Lucky Town. He released those at the same time, two separate albums, not a double yes. album. He did yeah. two albums, right? But but outside of that, Bruce's show. He swears he swears he was making a different artistic statements, and it wouldn't have worked as a double record. I think he was bumping the gross. Uh, yeah, I'd have to agree with you. And it's but, and not for nothing. It is hard to look at the Human Touch album and find something other than Human Touch that you would right. ever want to hear. It's, yeah, so. that's redeeming. Yeah. yeah, it's it's not a great record. Um, but back to uh, to Devin's point, Bruce would play for four hours. Wow! And, and he and he would do like one of my favorite live songs of his is Tenth Avenue Freeze Out because uh, on the record it's three minutes or whatever. But when he does it live, it's 12, 13 minutes. I mean, he just that's awesome. And, and it's not like he's um, just trying to fill up the time. He's yeah. making a statement that you just can't do on a record. He's just doing right. do it live. So when he would show up at these gigs with Cats on a Smooth Surface, he would do stuff like um, Johnny Be Good. And he pull pull out these old these 50s classics that influenced him growing up. And they would riff on these songs for forever and just just go and just play solos. I remember one time uh, the Stray Cats played the Stone Pony. Mm -hmm. And the, the rumor was special guest in the house and we all guessed who it was. Bruce comes out and played a longer set with the Stray Cats than the Stray Cats played. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How cool is that? You saw that? Yes. Cool. I did. I, by the way, I saw the, I saw the Street Cats at the Rainbow Music Hall in uh, in Denver, and it was a great show. They were awesome, and we yeah. got so we meaning the band I was in, we got free tickets to it because we were supposed to open up for the Stray Cats. No way! And Bruce, and Bruce intervened, and he wanted um, John Eddy and the Front Street Runners, which I thought was just just a cheap. I mean, it's like the. Uh, uh, the third generation um, from the original 
coin. So then you have the fraud. Then you have the fraud of the fraud. That's where I thought they were. The third, the fraud. Get a copy. But but but, wow. but Bruce liked them. So it, the 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 consolation prize was that Tony Pellegrosi gave us. And if you look him up, he's in the book too. Uh, he gave us, uh, he was in the Jukes, Chumper player. Uh, he gave us uh, tickets to, to see the show as a, as a consolation prize. We never would have got in. It was sold out months earlier. So um, anyway, and the, the Pony's a small venue or was yeah, back. But, now it's big now, but. Yeah. Wow. So, so, so uh, guitars on Darkness, and, and I think a, a lot of good piano work i think roy bitten who's a uh professor emeritus of of uh rock and roll piano i mean he, he's capable of like you know beautiful work and then you know and then can play simpler stuff of course but um he he's really something he he took a lot of side work over his career i know he's i know he, he's on uh roy bitten is on the uh Dire Straits album, Making Movies. I mean, it's great there. He's great there. Um, he's uh, he's played for Dylan and Bob Seger and elevated wow. both musically. So That that um, actually was something that jumped out at me when I listened to this record, is that I'm not a huge fan of piano and keyboards on rock records. I'm not, they have their place and sometimes they're great. But some of the songs shouldn't have piano in them. Like the one we talked about before, like that Adam raised a cane song. It's like, there's no room for it, but somehow he puts it in there. It doesn't take anything away from the impact of the song and it enhances the song. And I was probably more impressed. There was two things musician wise that jumped out at me. Number one was how much I like the piano in the, on this record which is not typical for me. But then the other thing that jumped out on me was right in the very first song when it just starts. It's like, I remember one of the reasons why I wasn't a big fan of the Born in the USA thing is, is that somebody that plays the drums, I hated the way they recorded Max Weinberg. It was so compressed at that time. And so 1980s at that time sounding yeah. that, that I didn't really know him. You know, I mean, it's like I was thinking, like, I always used to play when Born in the USA would come on and he does that thing at the end where he does the roll and he counts yeah. back in and all yeah. that. Yeah. I'm like, you can't hear that. It's noisy. You can yeah. barely hear that. It's like static. And so it annoyed me, yeah. you know, kind of as a drummer. This record, they recorded him right. They recorded him right. And, and, and it sounds really, really good. I love it when a drummer just pops and he pops through this whole thing. And there's a relationship between the vocalist and the drummer where they're mm-hmm. bouncing back and forth off each other. That is really great. So, no. so the two musicianship things that jumped out to me were that great piano player, which again, I would not have thought I liked, but I do. And the way they find the, I was introduced to that guy as a drummer for the first time on this record, even though I heard him before. So this is the first album, by the way, where Max Weinberg plays drums on the entire album. Oh, really? Yeah. Prior to that, so on on Born Born to Run, uh, Boom Carter, Ernie Carter, played uh, drums on Born to Run. 
and Ernie Carter picked up another gig and Bruce auditioned um, Max and then uh, hired him as, as the drummer. And prior to that, it was uh, Vinny Mad Dog Lopez, who um, Bruce talks about in his book, but we all knew it back in Jersey. Uh, he, he had a, a band called, what was it? Let's see, La Bamba had the hubcaps and Vinny had drawn a blank on the name of his band. But uh, you could hear on um, on the uh, first album. He, he was wild. Of, he was wild even by rock and roll drummer standards. Yeah. And, and it was which is why Bruce was like, you know, we're going to go with Boom Carter. Yeah, it, it was a substance abuse thing with, okay. uh, with Vinny that he since, you know, long since overcame and, and had a decent, uh, you know, local hero type career. But but Mighty Max rock solid. And when, when he was uh, with he was Conan O'Brien's band for a long time, um, met the Max Weinberg seven or whatever they call themselves. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. uh, just, you know, he was. He's not going to play, um, you know, finesse like Elvin Jones or some of the jazz guys. Uh, and he, he's not going to be a Buddy Rich, but and he's not even going to be a John Bonham. But what no he one does, is. <laughs> there's no there's nobody better. I mean, just he he's in the pocket. He holds down the beat. His tempos are rock solid. Yeah, and he also that. knows how to blend with the keyboards, which are a percussion instrument so that the two of them are not in conflict. And, and you hear a lot of that in, um, I would say, semi-professional rock, where the, the drummers got a few too many fills and the piano players got a few too many runs, and it just doesn't feel solid. And yeah. between he and Roy Bitten, uh, you don't find, you don't hear any of that. It's funny, as Jeff said earlier, I'm, I'm the millennial, and as a kid, I grew up watching Conan O'Brien at night. And I remember Max Weinberg being the drummer. And years later, I saw him playing with Bruce. And oh, Conan O'Brien's drummer's playing with Bruce Springsteen. How cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had it totally backwards the whole entire time. And kind of researched a little bit and realized how ridiculous that was. But yeah, he's a great drummer as far as, you know, his tempo. Like he said, his perfect timing, just solid, you know. Um, Bottom's, Bottom's my all-time favorite. And you know his skills are out there. His triplets are amazing, but there's something to be said about a solid drummer who can just keep time like that, and just be perfect. You know, with all the other other instruments. Part of, part of Springsteen's thing is, I mean, he wanted to have a real band. He wanted to be a real band leader, and, and it's almost like Count Count Basie. Um, he didn't mind having a big band. I mean, he, he you know they they all, and, and and like these are the guys. This is my crew. You know. And it, oh, <laughs> um, uh, we'll, um, but then, uh, I'm sorry. Um, he, 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 he didn't mind having a big band. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He had his crew. He was the dictator, but he had he his was crew. the boss. He was yeah. the boss. Right. Uh, in, um, so 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 um uh but i mean i mean like they, they learn those i mean all the tricks and and i've seen him in live enough to know that he like you know it just seems like the band is like so unbelievably tight um and then starts and stops with like incredibly in, incredible precision but i think that everybody in that band is keeps their eyes on him and like 
I think that the signal is when he drops his guitar. So he'll like lift his guitar up and then and then do a thing, and then that's when everybody... he's he's giving cues throughout that yeah. entire yeah. show. And uh, um, so when when he rehearses, he uh, he is the dictator. He he does not tolerate people being late. He doesn't tolerate nonsense. Right? He's the employer. They the the band ha has been well paid over the years, uh, maybe not as well paid as, you know, Rolling Stones, or, but for being full time musicians able to do side gigs when they weren't working with him, they did all right, they made some pretty good money. But if you watch his concerts, he does improvise. So he'll what he does in rehearsals, he'll say, if I do this with my guitar, like tilt it up a little bit, that means we're going to do one more verse. And if I feel that the audience is really grooving, like Hungry Heart is a great example where everybody sings the whole first verse, uh, he lets them. And if the audience is not quite into it, then he'll do something with the band to cue them to go a different direction. Then that's the value of having rehearsal after rehearsal after rehearsal, so that no matter what happens on stage, nobody's going to be surprised by it. And that's why it always sounds so tight. There's always variables in a concert a light goes out or the fan that's keeping you from sweating to death stops working or some some uh, fan jumps on the stage or a piece of equipment stops working and all of those things are factored in as much as possible which is why a Springsteen show whether you see it in Barcelona or you see it in Newark is going to give you that same level of energy and that connection with the audience. Yeah. Uh, one, one of the points that uh, Steve Van Zandt makes in his book is that um, you, you hone your craft uh, playing live uh, yep. and that a lot of new bands don't, don't do it. So it. David Grohl said the same thing. Uh, he made a comment, you know, I'll leave the profanity out of it, but uh, he said that um, you don't need American Idol, you don't need the voice. You don't need these uh, dashed hopes and dreams that come from these cattle call uh, auditions. He said, just get in the garage and bleeping play. He said, and play and play and play. And he said, that's how Nirvana came about, is that these guys got in a garage and they just kept playing. And so many other bands uh, were, were the Stones and the Beatles. That's how they came about. They were not corporate bands like, uh, you know, the Monkees and some of these other ones like Journey. They uh, these these were um, blue collar guys who really wanted to make it and they honed their craft and put in the 1800 hours to become proficient and a uh, little bit of uh, fortune here and there. So one of the things I'm, I'm going to put into the show notes, uh, Springsteen gave the keynote address South by Southwest in Austin. It's been a, it's been a minute ago now, probably 2012. OK. And wait, yeah, like 2012. And uh, no, it was later than that. I don't know. Anyway, he, he did the, uh, uh, he, and, and so, so the first song on Darkness on the Edge of Town is Badlands. It's a tremendous anthem. It's, it's rock and roll triumph right? It's uh, yeah. ain't, ain't no sin to be glad you're alive. And we're going to have some more on that in, in due course. But here's the thing. So um, 
the the guitar the, the rhythm uh to my amateur ear is a dun 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 would you say a march to march mm-hmm. okay well at, at this uh keynote address at south by southwest um he picks up the guitar and he starts playing and he's talking about how important the animals were uh, to his up and coming, right? And he said, for one thing, uh, and he's talking about like how mean uh, and hungry Eric Burden was. Mm. Uh, he also talked about um, uh, uh, how, how they were like normal looking. Like the Beatles were all gorgeous, right? The stones weren't as gorgeous, but like the animals were like ugly. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, he yeah. says, <laughs> it was like, made us think that we've got a chance. Um, okay, so I've, I've gone longer than I may have led some of you to believe. If anybody has to leave, we understand. This is kind of like, uh, you know, Sinatra on The Tonight Show. If uh, you have previous <laughs> engagements, just uh, uh, let me know, okay? Okay. Um, so, so here's the thing. Then he starts playing, uh, don't let me, uh, be misunderstood. Um, it's, uh, so he's playing this and he very casually moves. Okay, I'm screwing myself up. Um, he, it's the same riff as Badlands. Yeah, it is. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, okay, yeah, it's it's just. One's minor, the other's major. What's that? There we go. One's minor, the other's major. Is that what it is? Yeah. yeah. Just like that. Yeah. I mean, Springsteen said that the key to success was being able to steal effectively. You That's know, right. That, that was yeah. The, well, he stole from himself, too, but go ahead. Oh, as a guy who's li- who's listened to Springsteen a long time, he has re- he's recycled <laughs> stuff a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of it is just being really comfortable with certain imagery, right? Uh, the rain and so forth. So, so the thing I was going to say just about Springsteen not being a New York City guy, being a smaller town guy. And I think the thing that I've, I've, I've said many times on this podcast and certainly to anybody that will listen, but I think Darkness on the Edge of Town spoke to me, not specifically, not specifically, but, but the tone of it conveyed better than anything I'd come into contact with to the middle-class tragedy that was playing out in my my parents' suburban home, right? Dad's problems, mom's problems, the problems that are passed on to, you know, the kids and the, you know, the dogs who are like, can you please take me back to my kill kennel? Because these people are crazy. Um, you know, I, I, darkness really spoke to me. Um, Is that your favorite and, record? What's that? Is that your favorite record? Probably. All time? Pro- yeah, yeah pro- probably. I mean, I'll, I, I go back and forth between that and the river. But then, you know, look, I mean, I mean, I'm not trying to disrespect blood on the tracks. 
right? Or, or anything else. I mean, it's, it's hard to say, but I mean, I think to me, Darkness on the Edge of Town is the most personal record. Um, sure. Even though I never knew anybody, actually, I, I did know people who, who raced in the street, uh, but none of them were related to me. They have so, on, on, on YouTube, sometimes I watch them when I'm bored, these reaction videos, and they'll have younger people that have never heard classic rock songs that you think everybody have heard before. And, and watching them just light up when they hear something for the very first time, and you're sort of experiencing it from their perspective. This is the first time I've ever been in that perspective, you know, where I'm doing that. I am those kids mm -hmm. listening to it for the first time, because I could totally picture myself that if this was my time, my place, generation, this would be a very sentimental album for me. But it's just different because I'm I, I'm almost fifty and I heard it for the first time, so so. But but I could totally see where this would be a great kind of like landmark album for you, having heard it when it was brand new and got into it when it was brand new and being the right age at the right time. That's got to be now, that's got to be something. To be clear, yeah. this had been this had been released when I found it, but not not for very long. Uh, the River would be the first Springsteen album that I would get on the first day it was released. Mm -hmm. And that was, what, in 1980. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing, Chris Levine, is you grew up in L.A., which is where Springsteen escaped when he got tired of the rain and the cold and the rain and, and kind of wanted to start some things over again. That's what my parents did, too. They started in New Jersey <laughs> and then escaped to L.A. for the same reasons. Um, but, 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 but ultimately, you know, what's interesting is I have relatives that moved to look to the Los Angeles area too. And I remember being a kid and he was played constantly in, in, in the house, not my house, but in like my cousin's houses and things like that, because they were New Jersey to the bone, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so they loved, loved their Bruce Springsteen. And so it was around, it was totally around. Um, it just wasn't on the radio. Just yeah, one on, no. this this particular record was not on the radio. Uh, I mean, Springsteen didn't get played on the radio in Denver until Born in the USA. And, wow. and, and then, <clears throat> uh, then kind of a lot. I mean, by the end of the Born in the USA period, everybody was a little tired of Bruce Springsteen. I think that's fair. That's why I, I, don't, think, I, I don't think that's why I ever revisited any of the older albums. Yeah. Well, almost every song on that album was a hit. Just yeah, about. though, though, and some of them still sound great, but others, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not the same sort of compact statement that his better work is. So it was his most commercial album, and I'm sure he's, you know, put him on the path to being a gazillionaire, but... Um, and he, he's made plenty of money off of me over the years, uh, I assure you. <laughs> well, I had read back in the day that, um, and actually this was in an interview with him, um, and maybe it was right when uh, Born in the USA came out, he only had $20,000 to his name before yeah. Born in the USA. So he wow. was not, it, you know, the, the concerts were what was keeping him, right. uh, keeping, keeping him fed. 
not the album sales or the airplay. So um, he's got plenty of airplay in New York, but New York's just one market. So right, good. Though arguably the biggest, or at least or second biggest, right? Sure. Yeah, and and you know there were uh, Bruce Juice, and there were shows like that where they would uh, dedicate an hour on the rock stations to him, and um, and and just you know he very different there than anywhere but there. Yeah. Uh, the, the hunger for him. I was uh, I was going to ask though, it, did it, did everybody here see the movie Blinded by the Light? I did no, not. No. Okay. No. okay, so must it's a must see, and it's about uh, uh, a Pakistani man. True story of Pakistani man who grew up in England, and his friend who was also Pakistani turned him on to Bruce Springsteen because they were they were going through. Uh, the early college angst and the families wanting them to work for a living and he wants to be a writer and on and on and on and uh this friend of his of the protagonist um shows him how springsteen's lyrics have application to every situation in life <laughs> and so it, it, it it's a fascinating movie and and again it is it is a true story as true as you know without uh, i'm sure there's some hollywood touches to it but um but the uh, if you look at the biography of the uh, uh of the the man who produced the movie he's the writer and um uh, has seen at the time the movie was released i think he had seen something like over 150 bruce springsteen concerts and there were pictures wow. of him with bruce here and there but but he but darkness plays uh, a prominent role in this movie because of the, the lyrics and how they hit home and they again this is a young man 19 18 19 years old his father is insisting that he go to work and earn a living the old man's having a hard time making a living because you know they're being persecuted because of their their packies as they call them in the movie and he really wants to be a writer. He's got this burning desire to do something creative. So all of that fits into the whole uh, anthem of of the album and and a lot of other Springsteen songs. Yeah, I check that out. I've never even heard of that before. J Jared has recommended it to me. He said it was great. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. If you're a, a fan of Bruce, you, you will like it. Even if you're not a fan, you'll probably become one if you watch the yeah. movie. So Devin, you. Uh, your favorite cut on the record is Raise, um, Adam Raised a Cane. Yeah, Just, by far. Um, what do you think? Lyrically? Musically? <laughs> Everything. When I first heard the record, that's when it stood out for me the, the biggest. I mean, it's a big guitar song. Like even Chris said earlier, the, the vocals kind of start off kind of just whispering and get kind of haunting and just yelling and screaming. At the end, you think it's over. <laughs> and like the cymbals start shimmering. And then it just goes on again. You're just, you know, I'm just hyped by that point. And I just listen to it over and over again. I love the overtones of the loud guitar, the loud everything. It just is like control, uh, controlled chaos almost. I love it. Interesting. Yeah, I, um, I, I, that's actually grown on me as I've, as I've gotten older, as I've heard it live. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a lot to like there. There's there's substance and um, uh, and even after I heard it, I went down the rabbit hole on YouTube, just watching every live performance I could of it. So I found <laughs> some from you know like the early '80s and playing, and then him recently on a soundstage, 
and it's just how he opens up that telecast that single note just going and then that little rhythm comes in and then that lead part comes in and Bruce starts melting your face a little bit you know this is with the lead man I just I love it and every performance is a little bit different like like you're talking about uh galley with the cues stuff he does and looks back at the band and they they're so tight they just know you can tell they've been playing together for a lot or for a long time yeah no it's it's terrific um uh, the the third uh, song is Something in the Night, which is actually the example that I used w- when I was setting this up and I was texting Chris Galley. Um, I was talking about how much I, I like the album, but you know I, I really don't need to hear Something in the Night very often. And yet when I listened to it here again the other day, it was like so evocative. I mean, it brought back these, these memories. And I look, the, the music needs to stand on its own and not just make me feel 16 again. Uh, but that, I, I that, think it, that's, that was my favorite song on the album. Was it really? Oh, really? Uh, yeah. yeah. That I, was my favorite song on the album. It was the most, to me, the most moving and atmospheric song on the album. And again, if I was a younger guy and I was, you know, let's go get them, you know, or I've got to figure this out, that might not have <laughs> been my song. But as kind of an introspective person at the age I am now, it it hit me in the heart. I really, really oh. liked it. I, I, I thought that was a great song. That was my favorite. The, 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 the number two is a tie between yeah. Streets of Fire and the title track. Yeah. I, I just yeah. I, I think yeah. I think it's the slower ones, or you not not always, but I think it's like I'm a little bit more moved by by the slower by the slower ones. Um but that first one, that something in the night, especially again, who knew the piano? Mm, it's yeah. just beautiful. It's beautiful. It is, isn't know? it? Yeah. Uh, it it kind of tinkles there. Well, t- tinkle <laughs> sounds like like uh, babies peeing, but um, uh, it, they kind of glisten and gl- glimmer uh, uh, while Springsteen is kind of plaintively i don't know what you call that a moan there at the beginning mm. yeah i uh, know I, I i so so chris galley i i retract that i think uh, something in the night is is better than i uh gave it credit for in our text uh the you know, Je- so- jeff jeff if i can jump in yeah. going off of uh devin's pick too um mm-hmm. you kind of have to let's see if this helps i don't know if this is going to work but just to put it in perspective he was played on classic rock radio when I was growing up. Okay. So I kind of mentally put him in generations that were earlier. And so I didn't think of him as being influenced by, for example, punk rock or being influenced by what was happening around him at that time. You know, I, I they played him at the same time that they played, you know, uh, the Eagles, the Eagles or Boston. So to me, it's like, this is all one big con- conglomerate of, of music that they played together on those stations. So mm-hmm. I never thought of him as perhaps being rebellious or being like a uh, revolutionary or anything like that. I just kind of mentally lumped him in with everybody else. Yeah. So it was kind of interesting to come, to come at it now and realize he wasn't that old when this mm-hmm. was happening and, and, and everything in, in the world that was happening at the time, he was, he was uh, piggybacking on. Well, and that's, his a good, own. 
that is yeah. a really good point because what was happening in the world at the time? So Vietnam was over and the United States was floundering um, similar to what may be happening soon again in this country, interest rates were sky high. Uh, my parents, when they, uh, they bought, bought the house was, was like 19% interest uh, on a mortgage. Wow. Uh, uh, gas shortages, the, the gas was, was extremely expensive comparatively speaking. It went from like 35 cents a gallon to $1.50 seemingly overnight. Um, and it was not, it was strictly a, a fiscal shortage. Um, you also had uh, these incidents happening around the world, not necessarily major wars, but the pushing and the shoving going on between the United States and its allies and the Soviet Union and its allies was the Cold War was at its height. Uh, the threat of nuclear war was well, there. In, in 79, the Russians invade, or the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. Afghanistan. And, and that put that put the West on like, whoa, 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 you're only once you're only one move away from Iran now. Not OK. And close and close. Yeah. And um, then, yeah, Iran was in unrest in 78. I mean, it was it was a really uh, it was kind of, it was a dark time. Well, and and, and, and you, were, you talked about the situation in small town Jersey, but I mean, New York City went bankrupt. Crime was crazy, right? I mean, so New York City at the time, hmm. um, if whenever I went there, I put I had a twenty dollar bill in my shoe. That's just in case I got mugged, so I would have enough for bus fare to get home. Uh, if I took anybody to New York, at visitors, so uh, in fact, this this actually happened in nineteen seventy nine, um, uh, no late seventy eight when I was uh, in. Uh, in the military and we were on Christmas break. Uh, one of the guys, a trumpet player, he wanted to go to New York to hear some jazz. And I said, all right, here's the rules. Here's where we're gonna park and we're gonna walk as much as possible because cabs are really expensive. I said, but if anybody says anything to you, do not look them in the eye, do not say a word, just keep on walking. I said, because if you stop and acknowledge them, now you're marked and they're gonna mug you. And frankly, I'm not big enough to defend you, so you you just can't do it. So that's but that's how New York was. It was in de, in decline. It was in decay. Times Square was was uh, just full of smut and drugs, and uh, but it, and it attracted a lot of people. It's just the, the kind of people you never have home for dinner. So mm -hmm. uh, so Bruce considers himself a New Yorker as much as he does a New Jersey boy. And if when you fast forward to um, the rising, my city of ruin. Yeah. Right. So he talks about that empty sky. He's talking about New York City. But if you're in that area, you're in the New York metro area. You you pretty much are a New Yorker. That's all you see on the news, all the programming. It's all New York stuff until you get further southwest and it's all Philly stuff. But in that part of New Jersey, it's it's all New York. That part of the Jersey Shore is where the New Yorkers go to the beach. The southern part is where the Philadelphians go to the beach. So it's a, it's it, it is considered New York. And so and, and 10th Avenue freeze out is actually about New York. It's not about New Jersey. Right. It's about an experience right. his experience trying to trying to make it in the in a cold city uh, metaphorically and and physically. So um so it was a dark time and that in that album recording it in 
early to mid 1978 and even times late, late 1977, when um, every time you turned on the news, it was confusing because the United States, especially the, the government could get, couldn't get along with itself. And so, so as growing up, it's not like you had, like nobody wanted to be Jimmy Carter. Nobody aspired to be him. Um, they aspired to be John Kennedy. Uh, and then after that, it was like, nobody wanted to be any of those guys. Nobody wanted to be Gerald Ford. And that's what the seventies were like. It was just like, there was no, there was no figurehead to aspire to be like. And as a result of that, you had this despair and then accompany that with an alcoholic father at home and, uh, you know, an abusive upbringing and, and making it on a shoestring out to LA so that you can get your first break playing in a big club. And this is what comes out of it. So uh, the, the thing I've, I've appreciated about Springsteen back in those days, and I do think he's, he's uh, changed. I think he's, he's become like, uh, you know, Rocky in, uh, in Rocky three where uh, you know the worst thing like like mickey says the worst thing to happen to you is you won that title right and then all of a sudden you become complacent and you got to find your roots again which i think bruce has done maybe a couple of times which is why we are focusing on dark 1978 darkness <laughs> on the edge of town yeah so yeah so the the point being that that bruce that's where he was in that time period uh, absorbing what was going on in the world and reflecting that through that album. Yeah. Uh, song number four is Candy's Room. Now I'm here to tell you, I, I never thought that Candy was a hooker. Does, did, did, it, did you all know Candy was a hooker? I just assume from the name. <laughs> easy. Okay. Did you guys, I mean, listening to Strangers from the City, Call My Baby's Number, They Bring Her Toys, She Smiles Pretty, They Want to Be Candy's Boy? Okay. Yeah, she has men who give her anything she wants, right? right. Yeah. But they don't see that's what she wants is me. That what she wants is me. So he's in, he's in love with uh, a promiscuous woman. Well, and I and I had that, and and I I was friends with a girl who liked me, but not the way she liked some other guys. And uh, it, it's funny when I think back on it now. Her house had the same sort of, uh, you know, okay. So so you know you grow up in uh, Chris Galley's seventies, which is the seventies, and you, you spend your whole life being yelled at by your parents to shut the light out when you leave the room, right? Because electricity costs money, you right. know, and, you know, shut that door and don't stare <laughs> in the refrigerator. We're not trying to cool the whole house and <laughs> stuff like that. So I think that there was like a kind of a, I mean, at least in my experience, there was like a lot of physical darkness. People didn't have like a lot of lights. So the, the girl I'm thinking of, her house was never like brightly lit. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. So um, anyway, I, I was... I, I always equate it with that, but I've, I've read subsequently that Candy was in fact uh, a, a prostitute, but I, I never, I, but I, I mean, I listened to that song mm -hmm. for 50, uh, well, you know, whatever, 30 years and, and never knew that. Mm -hmm. uh, I like the guitar solo in Candy's Room too. It is cool. 
That is you cool. Like that. Uh, Chris Levine, beautiful piano work in Racing in the Streets. Am I right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I remember and, and being a kid. I wasn't expecting it. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm sorry. I was going to say I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. Uh, uh, I got a 69 Chevy with a 396, Dooley heads and a hearse on the floor. She's waiting tonight down in the parking lot outside the 7-Eleven store. Okay, so first of all, I thought that like the amount of detail that went into his car was hilarious when I was a kid. Now I see it as the flourish of a very gifted writer. Um, and by the way, the guys who are like into their cars and their muscle cars and like um, today's Prius to Tesla driving public probably doesn't appreciate how much guys were like into their fast cars when gas was uh, 35 cents. Um, but I, I mean, my friend Bob would like spend all sorts of money upgrading like the shifter on his Mercury or his, his uh, AMC Javelin. And, and, you know, just there's like just a lot of love and concern and care went into those cars. See, that, that, that's the vibe I get throughout this album a lot is like a car vibe. Maybe it's the ballady type stuff, but I get kind of that car guy vibe definitely throughout the whole entire album. I don't know. I'm thinking about the back of my head. Yeah, which is like amazing because I don't think Springsteen could drive yet. I mean, he barely like knew how to drive. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That, which is another kind of uh, chesty thing that he says uh, in his in his Broadway show. You know, it's like, yeah, I wrote I wrote all that and I couldn't even drive. Uh, that's how good I am. Which, which bugs my which bugged my wife and Chris Galley more than it bugged me. Um, Get that? Because well, you know, he also said he never worked in a never set foot in a factory, and it was was able to write about that. So I mean, yeah, it it just uh, it seems insincere, but at the same time, it, it also shows that um, he can tell a story without having to experience it. That's right. That's right. I mean, he's an imaginative guy. He's a smart guy. So, and I mean, he's a good writer. So. I think, and I think a lot of people do that. You know, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily live the most exciting lives, but they live vicariously through other people. And if you're artistic and you have the opportunity to find a way to write that down and make it yours, I mean, there's a lot of people that write love songs that have never been in love. You know, there's a lot of people that have never been in some glorious relationship that they're writing about but maybe they want to be. And so it's coming out of them, you know, and maybe there was a certain cool to that type of young guy who knew that much about the cars and who drove those cars and who was street, like really street. And I, I want to be more like that, but I'm not quite like that. I mean, I'm not speaking for him, but I'm just thinking a lot of people, they do that, you know, they arts and expression. It's like some kid in a bedroom watching television and wanting to be something that he's seeing on television might write that way you know and sometimes it's self-fulfilling prophecy they get there other times they don't but the, but their heart's in it so it's quite yeah. possible like for him even if he didn't drive a car he knew the culture yeah you know he was around the culture he was the right age for that so probably just came out naturally 
probably. It was, it was all around him. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't live in Jersey in those days and not know somebody who who had that fast car and was racing in the street, even if you didn't do it yourself. You knew yeah. somebody who did. That's something that always blows my mind too. Like a lot of the bands in the seventies and the early eighties, they put out so much music. They wrote all the time, writing constantly. Like nowadays, like you know, my favorite band, you're fortunate if you get an album every four years. You know, and back then they were putting out maybe two a year. That's just, you know, insane thing about now. Who's your favorite I, band? Brand new. They're brand new. So yeah, they're they're from Long Island. So a lot of the, the contracts required that you put out a certain number of albums per year and uh usually it was two every six months you had to put out an album and in between that you toured um and the the other thing is uh, which was unfortunate for for bruce that um most record deals uh back then when they were records you had to commit to three albums and the record company got almost all the profits, which is why you toured and sold merchandise at the tour is so you can make your living. You weren't gonna make it off the record sales. You, you got like a, you know, a, a penny for every wow. record that was sold, literally. I think the Jackson, uh, the composers of the Jackson 5's first album, I think got a penny per song, which is nothing. I mean, you'd have to, it's ridiculous. Uh, to, to this day, they, they don't make any money off that. You make it other ways. So, um, but it's different now. And, uh, you know, Taylor Swift uh, kind of changed a lot of that with, um, she became so popular, she could actually dictate now how the royalty should be paid out. And now it's individual downloads and you get yeah. uh, a song here and a song there, uh, you know, which is something lost. Whereas Badlands, you can look at that album and consider it um, a novel from beginning to end. Yeah. Hmm. It's it's telling a story. The whole album is. And back then, a lot of albums would do that. They would tell a story yeah. from yeah. start to finish. And uh, I think that's something lost on on the record industry. Yeah, there's there's I heard I heard a quote one time from Brian Eno, and he said one of the biggest problems with artists today is they have far too much time and far too many options. Okay. that they get lost in themselves. And, and I agree yeah. with that. You know, if it's like, yeah. listen, in six months, you need to come up with a record, start writing, something's going <laughs> to come out of it. And, yeah. and, and, and it's going to be pure and it's going to be honest. Whether or not it sells is debatable, but it's going to be legitimate. You got to do it. So it's your job. Let's do it. It's different than, you know, um, $100 an hour trying to figure out which is the most comfortable chair in the studio. It's a different <laughs> thing. It's a completely it's different thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like going to so Cheesecake Factory versus a taqueria. The menu's huge at Cheesecake Factory. Too many options, and you can go to a taqueria and just get the pastor or something, you know, something quick and easy. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly like that. It's exactly like that. A, a real proponent of listening to a, a record from beginning to end was Lou Reed, and in the same period, Springsteen. Uh, made an uncredited appearance on uh, Lou Reed's Street Hassle, uh, hmm. which um, it was. It was just a. It was a vocal, uh, and it was. It, it was very moving. Uh, listen, Street Hassle vied for my soul, um, hmm. and uh, could have won. Um, that was a. That was a dark, dark record. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you can't handle 
Martin Scorsese's work in the in the 70s, Stay Away from Street Hassle. Um, But uh, again, that was when Springsteen was kind of in the wilderness. He couldn't get his name on it because of this manage manage, management lawsuit. And so it was some of the, the work that he did. Um, and I, I wouldn't have put Bruce Springsteen in the same building with Lou Reed mentally when I was growing up. And it's part of the reason. It's part of the reason I always thought that Springsteen was more urban than he actually turned out to be. Mm-hmm. One of one of the, the first song on the second album, I'm sorry, the second side of the album, Darkness on the Edge of Town, um, back in the olden days, Devin, when you had to flip the record yeah uh was the promised land and maybe this is the song that um i don't know touches something and frankly i don't feel like a big enough winner to take badlands as my as my anthem but the promised land with its harmonica and there's a dark cloud rising from the desert floor so this was all based on a apparently this came about because of a trip to salt lake city that he and steve and um a photographer uh took They, they they flew into salt lake city and then like took a car and went through the high desert and um anyway they got he got Springsteen got uh, the promised land out of it and it's a it's a record that it's a song that I am always happy to hear and it always kind of moves me I mean I feel like you know it's like oh they're they're playing our song when you watch by the light you'll uh you'll see the significance of that song okay what's interesting is is that on first listen it took me a minute I went back and listened to, to, I listened to the whole album a couple of times. Um, but, but what gets me, and this is probably one of the best examples of it for me on the album, is that this man knows how to write a chorus. By the time the chorus kicks in, it's like, okay, I get it. You know, I needed a minute, but now I'm immersed in this song because the chorus is so good. Um, so that's, that's, the, that's the notes that I had for this particular song is I needed a minute. But once I got to the chorus, it, it, it I was fine. I really yeah. like the song. All right, cool. Uh, Factory um, is, um, I don't know. I, I, I like it. I mean, it's it's uh, Warren Zevon actually has a song called Factory. Uh, it um, punching out Chrysler's in the factory, breathing asbestos in the factory um it's different spring springsteen's is about a man who uh what the the character uh, the factory takes his hearing factory gives him life i don't know i'm glad i you know i and, and you know mrs winger will sometimes uh reference uh factory um she will and i and i think that she appreciates that I get up and go to work at a, you know, at a job I don't necessarily love. Um, if I was say independently wealthy, like Chris Galley, or, <laughs> or the or or the absent Brian Grimm, 
Um, <laughs> you know, I, I probably wouldn't do it, but you know, I, I do do it. And I, I think that there's, you know, it's a song that I think speaks to responsibility and commitment, but also, you know, that, that the, you know, the job isn't really how we get fulfillment, right? Right. Doesn't yeah. define you. Yeah, it's means to an end sometimes. Okay. Um, Chris Galley or no, Chris Levine, you said, no. Chris, Chris Levine said something in the night was your favorite song. So, so the next song on the album is Streets of Fire, which um, bears no relationship to the not good uh, Walter Hill movie of whatever, 1984, uh, with the young Diane Lane, who is exactly my age and aging better than I am. <laughs> By all accounts. <laughs> Streets of Fire was my number two. Was it really? Yeah, it was it, the Streets of Fire and the title track were, were tied for my number two. Oh, okay. Well, what did you like about it? I just, I just, it just felt right from beginning to end you know it's it's that it's that it had whatever that thing is that i like to hear you know um it worked it had some it had some noisy guitar in it yeah yeah i like that but it's structured i mean again that's what's so strange i'm not used to those two things being together like that mm -hmm. you know and and it was just a really interesting com combination galley you got streets of fire uh Oh, well, I have a lot to say about it. Um, <laughs> I love the song. Yeah. I think that it's, um, um, it's just another one of those where he's lonely, um, he's angry, um, and he's just, uh, just crying out. Um, you know, again, it just, it's reflective of the times. Springsteen makes it seem cooler than my old man ever did. <laughs> Being angry and lonely yeah. and crying out. <laughs> That's probably the element well, that, that, I, that drew me to it. You yeah, know, it's, so, like, it's a passionate sounding song to me. He, he says, because uh, in the darkness, I hear somebody call my name. And when you realize how they tricked you this time, and it's all lies, but I'm strung out on the wire. I mean, that's just... Uh, you know, it's a, it's despair. Yeah. Like one thing I noticed about that is not many lyrics in the song, but the lyrics that are in the song are very to the point. And he gets, it's very passionate. I think he gets it out. But next is such a great song. Yeah. Prove it all night. Right. Um, and and this is this is a personal one with between me and Mrs. Winger, right? Like the whole uh, uh, to buy you a gold ring and a pretty dress of blue, baby, just one kiss. We'll get these things for you. Um, uh, so it's got a great guitar solo. It's got a great sax solo. Uh, this song and and done live this song can just kill me um i i think that i oh i know i know i advocated to chris galley um 
I got, I bought the, um, so, so Springsteen who has been very savvy um, and has over the years released live recordings, like certain spe specific shows. So there was a, an, a live show from Cleveland in 1978 uh, where he, um, it was, it was a live radio broadcast and uh, it became available. So I, I had like the first half of it on a cassette. Uh, a friend of mine had um, taped it. It was like, I don't know if it was King Biscuit or, but it was a, it was a, a live um, concert. And the version of uh, Prove It All Night uh, just starts slow and builds and the piano and the guitar and there's a guitar solo that just makes me want my head to explode uh and it's it's unbelievable and then the the whole band just like tears into it like you know like special mm -hmm. forces you know converging on a, <laughs> on a thing it, it, it's it was amazing uh, in others like in his uh, live albums from uh okay so like he put out a live album and like 2000 um, about uh, from Madison Square Garden and they moved the guitar solo to the end. It was a very similar solo. I liked it better in front when it builds and it builds and it builds and then dun, 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 dun. Uh, it just works for me. Uh, anybody else got anything there? <laughs> or did I... <laughs> Sorry if I sucked all the ex oxygen out of the room. No, I, I agree with you that uh, the live versions that he's done of that song are very moving. Yeah. I'm right there with you. I, I, I love songs that have that build to it, that don't just start off super hot all the time, but have that build and where you just, you know, another layer adds on each time as that song goes and it just you know, explodes at the end. I love that. Yeah. 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 All right, good. So in this, um, um, uh, in this, we have the last, last exaltation on the album, right? I mean, they're in love, things are going great. Uh, it's fast, it's fun, it's cool. And then the concluding song, the 10th song on the album, the title track, Darkness on the Edge of Town. Uh, and again, we, we, it starts with the piano and then the drum seems especially heavy, doesn't it? Doodaloon-ch-boom. Doodaloon-ch-boom. Am I, am I wrong, musicians? Every, no. by, by the way, everybody... Uh, uh, one of these things is not like the other. I'm the only person that doesn't play anything. I, I've I've long thought that my my voice was my instrument. There you go. Your speaking voice. <laughs> I, I mentioned uh, I mentioned wait, it earlier, Jeff. Karaoke night resumes. <laughs> no, <laughs> just going back to what I said earlier. I love how they recorded the drummer on this record. Yeah, I just do. I, I especially mm -hmm. not expecting that to be the case. That's Jimmy Iovine. No, uh, I think I, I, I think a lot of it was Springsteen, and a lot of it 
it, it is a lot of, a lot of Jimmy Iovine, but it's also but, so little Steven also produced this record. Yeah, that's true. So there is a great clip that's probably on YouTube from uh, Springsteen and little Steven uh, selling the promise when it was released in 2009 or, or, or 2010. Uh, and it was hilarious because little Steven swears to this day that the darkness would have been so much better if Springsteen had only listened to him about producing it, about production. Right. And, um, and, 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 and then they were going to, so, so they re-released this and then they, they, did a tour when they were playing it live and and Steve Van Zant's always arguing for his arrangement and Springsteen's like are you out of your mind they've been listening <laughs> to it this way for 35 years and you're gonna like throw him a curveball no I think we're gonna stay with what works so when he's on yeah. Letterman when they're on Letterman uh I don't know Springsteen says something and little Steven goes yeah I'd have called it 70 lost arguments yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I, so, uh, yeah, so, um, he complained he had to learn a lot of songs. <laughs> well, he was getting paid. Was there ever like a, a, a reissue or anything with more songs on the record that they did? The Promise. Yeah, it's called The Promise. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, The Promise. Little, little different versions of some of the same songs, but there's a, a, other material that was never released by Bruce. Uh, right. Other artists re released it, but um, okay. Huh. I mean, it was like the first studio version of uh, "Because the Night" that Springsteen released, right? right. Yeah. <clears throat> so, one last thing before before we go, um, uh, Chris Galley mentioned the "Blinded by the Light" um, uh, movie, which Springsteen didn't do, though was apparently supportive of. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, so just recently, they released the 1979 No Nukes concert mm -hmm. performance. Okay. Fellas, I'm telling you, whatever you think you know about Bruce Springsteen, this is it. This is the real thing. And I was going to stay away because he didn't even, it wasn't even a whole show. It was a set. It, it was a set over like, I think, two or three nights. Um, right. And and then they've compiled this, but but he's young, he's thin, um, he's wearing a jacket like he used to do, which is like for some reason kept made me think of uh, Joe Strummer. I mean, he mm -hmm. had like I mean, he had sideburns and and this jacket on, and uh, he was having a good time. And later on, and I think and I think this is the so, so in this period. In the late 70s and early 80s so this period between darkness and the edge of town and the river and i saw him on the river tour twice and this was the first time i saw him and it was mm -hmm. I, I mean i i saw him at uh, the sports arena it was mcnichols arena in denver um which i as as far as i know is um indistinguishable from every other basketball arena in every other <laughs> city in america um I don't know, Chris Galley. It, it was, and, and, it's, and it's gone, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, and, and today's arenas are, are different and high tech and 
more posh. But I don't know that Big Mac was that different from the Spectrum, was it? No. Okay. So not a great place to see an arena, a, a concert, but it's where rock rock stars played. Anyway, it was it was it was great. I, I saw him twice. Anyway, in this in this era, he was something different. He was like a a young, hungry uh, rocker. Um, uh, he, I, I read an article. He said he never had money in the bank until the River Tour. Uh, it was the first time he made any serious money. Uh, and which does show how the fix was in. I mean, so like it, it took five records uh, and it was still touring that, that put a little coin in his pocket, right? So anyway, this uh, no nukes footage and leaving aside, you know, uh, well, first of all, I saw the No Nukes concert, and I think that that, and, and, and I remember him playing Thunder Road, um, The River, which just knocked my doors off, and then Quarter to Three, which is a Gary U.S. Bonds song. Um, Didn't he do the uh, Mitch Ryder trio? It was on the record. I don't think it was in the No Nukes movie. Now, no. I saw this movie when I was 15, um, a hundred years ago, so who knows? Uh, but um, so I, I think in the movie did quarter to three, but then everybody heard the devil with the blue dress medley, right? Yeah, Which, on the radio, it's got a, got a lot of airplay in Jersey, and it was on it was on the No Nukes album. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, you there's only so much John Hall band. Uh, that ever got played off of off of that, um, you know. I mean, the, the the Springsteen albums were like worn smooth, and uh, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, Bonnie Raitt was in it. J Jackson Brown. Uh, Jackson Brown had a big hit off of that. That live version of "Running on Empty" came out of that. I, I kind of liked that. I kind of still do. But Was, uh, wasn't 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 Tom Petty on that too? Oh yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I remember. Really. Hearing I remember hearing an interview uh, with him at the time and he said that the stage manager or their manager, whoever it was, came up to him and said, if you go out there and you hear what sounds like booing, they're not booing you. They're saying Bruce. Bruce. And he goes, what's the difference? <laughs> so uh, did you know that most of the electricity that um, <laughs> powered that concert Came from coal. a power plant. Coal, coal powered. No, no, no. Nuke, nuclear. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, that's ironic. Indian River. Yeah, I'll say it's pretty. Yeah. yeah. Con, Con Edison had nuclear a nuclear plant. At, well, this is before Three Mile Island. So I don't think so. I, I because shortly because, after. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's I, why I, no I, nukes fight. You're right. Three Mile Island caused the no nukes. I I, I think so. Yeah. 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 But, yeah. but it, it's still nuclear power was still supplying a lot of the electricity in New York. The Europeans use it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how that works. It is, it's, it's, it's very, very clean. Also <laughs> very dangerous the way it is now. But, but you know, it's just, I, I don't know. I, um, did Bruce know that? Did he care? Didn't matter. He was trying to make a statement. And interesting enough, uh, it took him until uh, Bush the second 
to really state his political views. Like he would, you kind of knew where he stand by his stood by his music, but that's when he really said, "Uh, uh-uh, this is what this is where I am." And politics are blissfully ignorant on darkness on the edge of town. Arguably yeah. the most personal record for me, Jeff Winger. At this juncture, boys, Mrs. Yeah. Winger's telling me that pizza is served. Is this just being just having mm-hmm. two thirds of my guests be be goombas by paisans? Excuse me, paisans. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, um, so Chris Galley, Chris Levine. Devin McBride, thank you very much. This has been a fantastic con- uh, conversation. I hope people will check out the podcast at, you know, it, around Chris Levine's better podcast. Um, oh, so, stop it. Oh, I can't, how can I stop it? You, uh, are, you are Springsteen. I am John Cafferty in the Beaver Brown Band. <laughs> and they had a hit. <laughs> you didn't deny it you didn't deny it it was it was on the dark side wasn't it yeah see boys i appreciate this very much i enjoyed the heck out of it i hope our listeners do Same. too so on behalf of galley levine and mcbride i'm jeff winger peace and love All right, welcome back. And thanks very much, uh, Rob, um, for sticking around. Sure. So so Badlands is is like this thing. uh, What what else sticks out to you? We don't have, I don't want to take all all your time. I I know, you know what? Having you on the show is like Carson talking to to Frank Sinatra. I mean, (laughs) after we do a thing, it's going to be like, we know you've got pre- previous uh, uh, commitments, Frank. Thanks for dropping by. And, you know, then you're- I don't have to sit on the couch the rest of the show. No, no, <laughs> absolutely not. Absolutely not. So we, we don't need to go song by song, but wh- what else? Uh, I, I mean, what else? What other observations do you have? Uh, just, you know, we talked a little bit about just how the whole record fits a theme. Um, I think it does writing wise, you know, uh, lyrically, I guess, but also sonically it's, it's dealing with, there's a lot of anger in the record. There's, there's meanness and sonically all those different things he used. It's very stripped down. It's just the band basically, you know, there's not a lot of, um, extra ear candy or production to it, you know, but like the electric guitars that, they're they're kind of like they scream at you you know yeah, like adam sure. raised, the, raised the cane note one is that guitar riff just you know and it's just ripping you know and there's there's he he just sonically the record um conduces a emotion really well you know um based on the story he's telling you know even like racing in the streets which is totally the opposite of that you know just piano, like a sadness and a, a beautiful um, melodic piano. To, that, that's the majority of that song, you know? So for me, just sonically, the record also tells the story, you know, and, and melds so well lyrically with, with the story. It's, uh, it's just an amazing piece of, of art, I think. Yeah. 
No, I, I agree. And I didn't, it's only been dawning on me. And then, and then of course, um, now there's literary, um, uh, you know, evidence or, or uh, uh, verification, but, uh, you know, Springsteen uh, writing this and recording this in New York in the 70s uh, is very, I, I mean, there's a punk influence. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which, which, uh, okay, so, so uh, the thing you and I agreed on in high school was um, Springsteen. You would, would pivot out to ACDC and Zeppelin. And I pivoted to the clash and, 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 and that, and yet I never really, um, I never really, uh, picked up on the punk influence until I, until I started thinking about it within the context. I mean, I, I, unlike my genius friend, Chris Levine, I didn't realize it was, um, I mean, like Adam Raised a Cane was essentially a punk record with a with a piano, which no self-respecting punk band would ever have. <laughs> but but that's why I, I, I prefer the E Street Band. I mean, the use of the piano, the use of, of the saxophone was was terrific. Right. Yeah, um, I, I didn't listen to a lot of punk, but um, for what's known as as classic punk or whatever, um, I went more to the pop side, like you said, but, um, well, I, I wouldn't I call Zeppelin. I, I mean, you, you were more of a, I mean, I don't, I mean, you never had long hair and were a headbanger, but I mean, you, you, you liked metal such as it existed in 1980 when you were 81. Yeah. I was never a hairband guy, you know, but no, Zeppelin no, 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 but, more but you, a, a rock blues rock, you know, but our late our late lamented friend Bob loved Ozzy. Did you like Ozzy? I didn't. I didn't really know Ozzy and or Black Sabbath. No, you know, and in, in those years, so no, okay. I wouldn't say. But you, you know. love Zeppelin. Yeah. yeah. Did yeah. you have a house? Did you have a Houses of the Holy T-shirt? Uh, I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I did now. <laughs> But no, I, I don't think I ever had any Zeppelin t-shirts, but so. Well, we'll have the guys show you how to use, how to get to this site called eBay. <laughs> okay. Is that a new thing the kids are doing? Or... <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's a miracle I'm on this call even. <laughs> so... I am so proud of you. This is amazing. Right? It's great. It's great to see you, buddy. You too. Yeah. 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 So. Um, all right. So all kidding aside, you've been very generous with your time. So I, I don't want to, uh, you know, I, I don't want to keep you all night. Also, Mrs. Winger, once again, is. Um, Hi, Julian. She's actually in the other room. Okay. Where, where um, the setting of the table seems to be getting louder with the <laughs> piece see. of flatware. Right. I got you. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing this, Jeff. Oh, no, 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 no. Thank you. I mean, uh, no, I mean, that was great. That was so insightful. That was great. It's nice to try to help out one of our, you know, musicians that could need a lift a little bit, you know. 
So it's good, good that you're finally helping promote the guy. So, oh, well, let's, you know what? I mean, look, it's not like you're on Fallon. Okay. <laughs> but, um, what, what is, what do you and the band have cooking? Oh, well, this, we always tour and, uh, Todd keeps writing songs. So we'll figure out some, some, somehow to get them to people and keep driving around the country and playing music. So. Uh, you got, uh, um, is there a new record coming out in the, in the new year? Uh, nothing's yet, okay. but uh, we've had some conversations of maybe okay. trying to assemble something again. So, um, and so circumstances <laughs> in the world permitting you'll tour in 2022. Yep. Yeah. We have stuff planned starting next month. So as long as doesn't get shut down we're back to work so so we'll uh and for people who wanted uh, more information about the upcoming tour and the band in general they could go to bigheadtodd.com that's it okay yeah. very good um is it big head todd in the monsters.com no we, we made it simpler Plus, oh that's see that's good thinking yeah do you guys have bhtm.com? Um, I think we, we may have at one point, but I don't, we don't use okay. that. It's bigheadtodd.com, yeah. All right, uh, Big Head Todd. So th this is the, the story I tell sometimes is, uh, so I, I was your guest uh, at a show in Red Rocks several years ago. Uh, Los Lobos was one of the bands that opened. And uh, we were, I was privilege to be in the wings and i'm standing next to brian nevin the drummer of big head todd and the monsters and uh i mean it's just i mean you know look i mean I, I i've known you guys forever but it's pretty star struck splendorious you know to uh be backstage at red rocks and um nevin leans over to me says so did you ever think we'd be here <laughs> and i i thought about lying then i'm like no <laughs> right and, and so i said did you he said no and if we did we surely wouldn't have been we surely wouldn't have called ourselves big head todd and the monsters <laughs> exactly yeah that would have been a better move somewhere along the line right <laughs> uh though parkmore squires and nevin uh sounds like an accounting firm yeah yeah no um uh so uh all right um uh so bigheadtodd.com um on tour and uh okay well uh that will uh conclude this episode of the managing expectations podcast thank you very much we hope that you've gained some insight but more an appreciation for this great rock and roll record. Please check it out at uh, your soonest possible convenience. I'm Jeff Winger. Peace and love.